Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dave Zimmerman, and I'm an Associate Professor of Pharmacy at Duquesne University. And today we're going to talk about treatments of pain and symptoms seen in palliative care. Palliative care is often confused with hospice care. Pharmacotherapy is a mainstay of this area of focus in palliative care, as pain and symptom management are vital to maintaining comfort in patients with severe disease. Palliative pharmacotherapy is neither curative nor disease-modifying. The focus of treatment is symptom management designed to lessen distress and improve quality of life. Today, I'll be chatting with palliative care pharmacist Maria Foy and Norman Pillsbury about the treatment of pain and symptoms for patients receiving palliative care. Maria is the pharmacy care coordinator and palliative care pharmacist at Abington Jefferson Health in Abington, PA, and Norm is the clinical pharmacy specialist at HCA Florida Ocala Hospital in Ocala, Florida. This conversation will focus on the pharmacologic management options for pain and symptoms commonly seen in the palliative care population. So Norm, as the services are often misunderstood, what's the difference between palliative care and hospice? Thank you, David. Palliative care provides both compassion and comfort measures to provide relief from the symptoms of a serious illness or one that will shorten the patient's life, including treatments designed to relieve stresses associated with the illness, along with related psychological, spiritual, and social challenges. It's an approach that seeks to improve quality of life. Hospice care also provides both compassion and comfort measures, but is defined in a more limited sense in that it is no longer curative. Hospice care is for patients who have a prognosis that if the disease continues as expected of no more than six months. Palliative care can be delivered not only at end of life, but also during treatment that is expected to be curative. Palliative care can start at any stage of a severe illness, whether the illness is terminal or not, and it is chosen by the patient and physician. Hospice care requires that the patient has been certified by two physicians as having six months or less of life left if the disease follows its typical course. Thanks, Norm, for that explanation. It is so confusing. So many of our practitioners confuse palliative care and hospice. And while we do a lot of palliative care in hospice, not all hospice is palliative care. There's also a big difference on how costs are associated with these two types of care. Coverage for many types of components of palliative care, it varies a lot with insurance plans and also by the provider. Medicare Part B and Medicaid do pay for some types of palliative care, but often there's co-pays. There can be an exclusion to some of the criteria that to meet some of these, um, to meet whether you get reimbursed for uh, palliative care. Medications may not be part of the formulary, and that's especially true in hospice. In hospice, medications that are covered are usually for symptom management only, and curative treatments are no longer covered. So you have to really check with the plans and see what costs will be associated with palliative care, and hospice will usually determine which costs are associated with their services. Now, hospice care in general is 100% covered by Medicaid, Medicare, private plans. But that's mostly for equipment, medications, nursing, social services. And what a lot of people don't understand is for routine level of hospice care, that room and board is not covered. So if you're not doing hospice care in your home and you go to a treatment facility, you may have to pay for that treatment facility and insurance may not cover that. 
Another difference is where the care can be provided. So my institution actually has a palliative care inpatient service, which is very robust. When I started with the service about 15 years ago, we were running about 11 patients, and now we run about 40 to 50 patients on a daily basis. We also provide that on an outpatient basis through our home care services. So we have hospice-trained nurses that will do palliative care in the outpatient setting. But of course, those patients will come back and forth to the hospital. And hospice care can be provided in many different settings, not only just inpatient and at home, but you can go to a full-based hospice facility. So my institution actually has a 20-bed hospice unit that serves as more of an inpatient and residential hospice service. And also can happen in nursing homes, in hospice homes, in other places. So what we have in common, palliative care and hospice, is we are really trying to make patients more comfortable. We want to have them to have an improved quality of life. We want more services behind, besides symptom relief. We want to provide some support for families and patients as they're going through this very difficult time and really assist with them in trying to make decisions on goals of care. Awesome. Thank you for the clarification on the two. So Norm, what symptoms are common in a palliative care patient? We treat a variety of symptoms for the patient population that chooses palliative care. Pain is the most common symptom seen in this patient population. Other symptoms that are associated with opioid therapy include constipation, fatigue, delirium, nausea, and vomiting. Opioid therapy is also used in the treatment of shortness of breath, taking advantage of the respiratory depressant side effects to decrease the work of breathing. Palliative care treatments include both non-pharmacologic and pharmacological modalities. Treatments vary with the underlying diagnosis. A patient's decline could be due to failure to thrive associated with inanition. In this case, the symptoms could be a loss of a certain percentage of body weight, dysphagia, aspiration, decreased albumin, and others. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease includes the symptoms of shortness of breath, frequent coughing with and without sputum, wheezing, tightness in the chest, weight loss, frequent pulmonary infections, and tiredness. The more severe symptoms are bluish or gray nail beds and lips, inability to speak or catch one's breath, confusion, fainting, increased pulse, and swelling of the lower extremities. Congestive heart failure includes the symptoms of shortness of breath, persistent coughing or wheezing, and edema. Ischemic heart disease may have no symptoms, but may manifest as severe chest pain and shortness of breath. Recurrent infectious disease or sepsis includes the symptoms of fever, chills, hypothermia, reduced urinary output, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, weakness, dizziness, excessive perspiration, and pain in the infected area. Neurological diseases such as Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and strokes each have their own constellation of symptoms. Parkinson's disease includes the symptoms of constipation, reduced sense of smell, muscle stiffness, speech changes, stiff face and tremor. Multiple sclerosis includes bladder and bowel problems, mood changes, difficulty with attention, learning and memory, fatigue, weakness, poor coordination, dizziness, muscle stiffness and rigidity, vision problems, numbness and tingling and pain in the extremities. The symptoms of ALS include difficulty walking, difficulty with the activities of daily living, falls, tripping, weakness in the lower extremities, slurred speech, difficulty swallowing, clumsiness and cramps or twitching of the arms, shoulders, or tongue. The symptoms associated with a stroke include blurred vision, confusion, trouble speaking, trouble understanding, 
dizziness, loss of balance, severe headache, and numbness or weakness of the face, arm, or leg, generally on one side of the body. Liver disease manifests as nausea, vomiting, right upper quadrant abdominal pain, jaundice, fatigue, weakness, and weight loss. The symptoms of end-stage renal disease include nausea, loss of appetite, tiredness, itching, headaches, reduction in the production of urine, edema, changes in skin color, and increased skin pigmentation. The symptoms associated with the terminal diagnosis of cancer, of course, depend on the location of the tumor. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or HIV, will display the symptoms of hypothermia, hypotension, irregular pulse, increased perspiration, skin color changes, bluish or pale lips and nail beds, sudden movements of the extremities, and reduced talking and breath sounds. Dementia in the final days is seen as cold hands, feet, arms, and legs, inability to swallow, terminal agitation or restlessness, shallow breathing and or long gaps between breaths, and an increasing amount of time spent sleeping or unconscious. Awesome. Thank you for going over those differences between the different, you know, disease states and look at the symptoms. I know one that definitely stood out to me was pain. And I know that can be challenging as it's very common and one of the most commonly treated symptoms in palliative care. So Maria, how is pain treated in this population? David, you are so right. It is ridiculously common to see pain at end of life. And in fact, that's what patients report most and actually report that they're more fearful of dying in pain than the dying process itself. So about 80% of patients will experience pain at end of life, and it's often undertreated. With this opioid crisis, I actually just saw something come across my desk today where pain management is, we're seeing less amount of opioids prescribed in our chronic cancer patients. And this is not because of opioid use disorder. I think this is just because of some biases with pain management at this point. So we're seeing more and more pain undertreated, and people are very fearful of being in pain at the end of their life. So what we need to do as practitioners is really assess the patient. What is their pain from? Is their pain acute? Is it non-cancer pain? Or is it chronic cancer pain? And that will help determine what we would be using to help with pain management. It'll give us an idea of what would be the most appropriate choices, especially for acute pain when we have a broken arm, say, or you know something that we know is going to get better. We often see that we'll use acetaminophen or we'll use non-steroidal drugs such as ibuprofen and naproxen. And especially if that pain is persistent, we can use those medications around the clock to try to help with that persistent acute pain until that pain resolves. Now, for our chronic pain, say our neuropathic pain, I have multiple sclerosis. So for example, my pain is chronic. It's more nerve-based pain. And opioids in general do not really give long-term benefit for chronic non-cancer pain and often can make that pain worse. So what we use in those types of pain situations are something called coanalgesics or neuropathic pain or more sensitized pain syndromes. These options can include some steroids, antidepressants, so antidepressants such as serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, or tricyclic antidepressants can be helpful for neuropathic pain. We can use bisphosphonates, anticonvulsants, especially the gabapentinoids, gabapentin pregabalin, muscle relaxants can be helpful, and sometimes topical or local anesthetics. And what I feel is one of the most important things in chronic non-cancer is addressing those psychological comorbidities that make patients not be able to cope with their pain. 
And oftentimes what we find in patients that aren't unable to cope with their pain and do have these psychological comorbidities, that their comorbidities and their anxiety and depression actually sensitize the pain system and break the pain system where it is firing more often and firing at lower thresholds. So in these patients, addressing some of those psychological comorbidities and allowing coping skills can be more beneficial than any medication alone. So multimodal therapy is recommended in many types of pain, especially chronic non-cancer pain. We provide analgesia with multimodal therapy in different ways that fit the pain pathway. So for example, maybe we use acetaminophen and, and non-steroidals and they work in different ways than an opioid. We use them around the clock, allow the opioid to be used as needed in order to try to minimize the amount of opioids that we need it for a particular type of pain. And then with our chronic non-cancer pain, we try to use those co-analgesic agents that I had mentioned before. Now, as pain worsens, you may consider opioids, especially if we see cancer pain that has metastasized, that's where opioid therapy is truly appropriate. Opioids are available in many different formulations. They can be administered orally, sublingually, injectable via a patch in different ways of injectable, in other words, IV, subcutaneously, intramuscular, which we do try to stay away with with opioids. It's really not recommended anymore, but some people will still give intramuscular opioids. There's also epidural injections, intrapecal pumps, and patient-controlled analgesia that can provide some pain control in some of these patients. Now, as far as opioids, morphine is the most common. It's the most studied in palliative care, but we have other opioid options, oxycodone, hydromorphone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, sometimes methadone, and now morphine. So see, these are some of the more commonly prescribed opioids. And we tend to always want to go to morphine, but morphine has a relative contraindication in renal failure. So many of our opioids are metabolized by the liver, which you would think that renal failure doesn't matter. But morphine, and to a degree, hydromorphone, produces toxic metabolites that can accumulate in renal failure because those metabolites are excluded renally and they're also not eliminated by dialysis. So in some patients, those metabolites can accumulate and actually cause something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia and opioid-induced neurotoxicity. And I've witnessed this a few times and it's fascinating to see someone, my patient developed severe myoclonus from too high doses of opioids. So I had to convert her off of those opioids, reduce her dose by a good 75%. And I use methadone as my conversion off in that situation. And methadone can be highly effective in that scenario. And so in the past, we thought that there really was no ceiling dose with opioids, but we know that's not true now. That sometimes with rapid titration, chronic non-cancer pain, that we can see toxicities or making pain worse with opioids, which is really kind of counterintuitive in the way we were all taught. So what we know now is we have to address these patients individually, monitor for side effects that we may see, including sedation, nausea, confusion, constipation, and look at some patients and determine if we're increasing dose of opioids, is this just because we're developing tolerance or are we causing hyperalgesia and causing pain to be worse? So this is where we have many difficulties in treating pain, determining what exactly that pain is coming from, determining the influence of the psychological comorbidities on that pain and treating it effectively. And I'm going to talk a little bit more later in the podcast on how to address pain management in someone with opioid use disorder, as these probably are most difficult patients that I have to take care of.
Awesome. Thank you, Maria. So Norm, I know, you know, one of the tricky areas is what happens if a patient's not able to take an oral dosage form. So what do you do for patients in those situations? As patients decline, they may require modification of the dosage forms to permit administration. This means that the pharmacy must be equipped to modify medications into atypical dosage forms to provide care. Dosage forms that are used in palliative care may include transdermal gels, lollipops, suppositories, suspensions, and others. Alrighty. And I know Maria touched base on this a little bit regarding side effects, but do patients develop tolerance to the side effects of opioids? Adverse reactions to opioids include respiratory depression, sedation, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and delirium. Delirium can be due to pain medication or can be a result of the pain itself. Most patients will develop tolerance to the opioid-related side effects, except for constipation, as Maria mentioned a moment ago. Opioids cause constipation in various ways, through slowing down of GI motility, through reducing fluid absorption into the GI tract, and increasing the anal sphincter tone. Constipation would need to be prevented in patients requiring opioid therapy. Stimulant and osmotic laxatives, such as Senna, Isocodal, and polyethylene glycol, or Miralax, are first-line agents for constipation prevention. Docusate has not been shown to be useful for prevention or treatment of constipation, despite being routinely ordered for treatment. In patients who fail traditional therapies, a class of medications known as peripheral mu opioid receptor antagonists, or PEMORAs, are now available specifically for the treatment in refractory opioid-induced constipation. Alrighty, thank you. So Maria, looking at you know, some of the side effects, including you know, sedation and fatigue, what's your approach in managing these symptoms? So sedation and fatigue, oftentimes you will develop tolerance, but some patients may just have in general sedation and fatigue made worse by some of their opioid therapy or some of their medication therapy. So we have some tools, we have psychostimulants, we have corticosteroids, and they may be useful to help with some of the sedation and fatigue that we're seeing in our patients. Also methylphenidate and modafinil have been recommended. Corticosteroids, like I mentioned, can be beneficial, but really you have to look at how long you're going to be needing the steroids as we would use these more with a shorter prognosis to the, some of the adverse effects that we see. And Norm, I want to go back because I know you mentioned nausea and vomiting. What's your approach in managing these symptoms? Well, nausea and vomiting in this patient population responds to a variety of medications. Dancitron is one of the more commonly used agents for the treatment of nausea and vomiting. Haloperidol is used, especially if delirium is also present. Prochlorperazine works similarly to haloperidol, but it has less effect on the QTC if that's an issue. Metoclopramide provides relief, especially if the nausea and vomiting is due to gastroparesis. Dronabinol is effective. Olanzapine can be provided once a day for prevention with other shorter acting agents be administered for breakthrough emphasis. For patients with QTC prolongation needing an anti-nausea agent, olanzapine would be considered a first-line option. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, going to another symptom that we'll, we'll sometimes see is delirium. So, Marie, what's your approach to management of delirium? Yeah, we see delirium pretty commonly, especially at the end of life during the active dying phase. And it's interesting because delirium can be present from both pain and medications, but also pain can cause delirium. And really, the best way to treat delirium is to prevent it. And if it is identified, trying to find out what is that causes of delirium and reversing whatever is 
causing that patient to have that delirious state. And most of the times it can be reversible, except at end of life. End of life, there's something called terminal delirium, where we may just need to treat that delirium symptom in order for that patient to be comfortable. So in general, in order to prevent delirium, good sleep hygiene, exercise, making sure we treat medical conditions that can lead to delirium, and maintaining that familiar environment. Those things can prevent delirium. So in my hospital, when patients come in, we try to make the room a little bit more friendly and home-like, having people bring in pictures, having music being played that the patient may like. All of those things can help make that environment a little bit more home-like and maybe prevent that delirium. But in some cases, we may require pharmacotherapy in this palliative care population in order to treat that delirium. Norm had mentioned Haldol can be used. Haloperidol is a drug that can be used for delirium treatment. It's used widely for both agitation in patients younger than 60 and mild to moderate agitation in the elderly. Oftentimes you can get away with a low dose of 0.5 milligrams given a few times a day. You can give it intravenously, subcutaneously, and especially in an acute situation, we can do doses of one to two milligrams every 30 to 60 minutes until that agitation is better controlled. There's atypical antipsychotics, such as olanzapine, risperidol, and quetiapine that are commonly used. These may cause less of the extrapyramidal symptoms that you may see with haloperidol. Benzodiazepines are often turned to for delirium, given first line, but we have to be careful with that. They're not first line agents. They may cause a paradoxical reaction, especially in the elderly, and make that delirium worse. But at end of life, one of the strategies is to use haloperidol and a benzodiazepine to control some of that severe agitation that doesn't respond to haloperidol alone. And we use lorazepam very commonly in that scenario, especially at end of life. Many patients can lose their appetite, whether it's due to you know, the disease states, medications, or just feeling nauseous. So Norm, in these situations, what can we do to help these patients? Medications used for the anorexia cachexia of criminal illness include megestrol. This has been demonstrated in many clinical trials to improve appetite and weight gain better than steroids, better than eicosapentaenoic acid, dronabinol, and nandrolone. It's important to note that weight gain often seen with megestrol and other appetite stimulants and the presence of cachexia in older people and patients with cancer or renal failure, that is the usual component of the weight gain with little benefit for duration. They are best used for patients with a short prognosis. Doses used include three to six milligrams of dexamethasone daily, 15 milligrams of prednisone daily, 32 milligrams of methylprednisolone daily. Low-dose mirtazapine can be tried. Benefit has been demonstrated for weight gain in the healthy depressed population. Dronabinol increases appetite also and is used in doses of 2.5 to 20 milligrams per day. Some studies indicate that melatonin may provide benefit and anabolic steroids have been studied for this indication and have also demonstrated some benefit. Now, Maria, I know another thing we may see is shortness of breath. So what do you do when managing kind of your refractory shortness of breath symptom? Yeah, we see that a lot, especially in our end-stage COPD patients and often in our cancer patients. And oftentimes we could take advantage of the respiratory depression effect of an opioid and use that for the treatment of dyspnea. So we can see that that can help patients breathe better. 
It helps well when oxygen alone may not work. And the opioids, they can be used in various different ways. So if the symptoms are, you know, come and go and just intermittent, we can use intermittent therapy of an opioid to treat that shortness of breath. But some patients may have persistent shortness of breath. And in those situations, we may start an opioid infusion and someone that may not be able to take in orally or a sustained release opioid may be also beneficial in someone that can still take oral medications. Benzodiazepines in some patients, their anxiety makes their shortness of breath worse. So in those patients, benzodiazepines may be effective to help with the shortness of breath symptoms. And I'm kind of curious, Norm, do you ever see patients at end of life with a history of substance use disorder? Yes, the risk of substance use disorder is the same in both the palliative care population and in the general public. And that's approximately one in five are at risk for abuse. And what are some of the challenges in the treatment of severe pain in this population? Well, often patients in recovery may be afraid of the risk of relapse if opioids are used for the treatment of pain. And practitioners may be reluctant to prescribe opioids for severe pain in someone with an abuse history. In addition, inappropriate opioid prescribing may elicit behaviors that may mask other physical or psychological symptoms or issues, increasing the stress of the caregivers. And how do you approach treating patients with a substance use disorder? So these patients, as I said, are pretty difficult, and we're seeing more and more of these comorbidities, but really we need to have a shared decision-making between the patient, between other members of the team, including their family, other healthcare professionals, and anyone that can help support the patient. We need to individualize these treatment plans to provide a balance of appropriate treatment and monitoring and minimizing worsening their use disorder. We should address these underlying mental health issues that often cause patients to use and abuse medications. And we can address these comorbidities because they often drive their misuse. So assessing for risk also in anyone that you're going to be starting on opioid therapy is now being recommended even in the palliative care and hospice population because their risk is no different than anyone else. And so anyone that's being initiated on opioid therapy, we try to risk assess in order to make sure that we're providing safe recommendations. That doesn't mean that we're going to hold, withhold opioids on patients. We may just monitor them more often and just have a little bit more scrutiny on these patients. That's an interesting point. Norm, is there a way to determine if a patient has a current or a history of substance use disorder? Yes, patients should be screened for personal and family history of substance abuse and mental health disorders using validated risk assessment tools prior to initiating opioid therapy. Substance abuse screening can be conducted using the CAGE aid tool validated to assess for current alcohol and drug abuse. That's C-A-G-E hyphen A-I-D. Risk for future misuse can be assessed using the opioid risk tool, the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain or a combination of both. Current misuse is screened using the current opioid misuse measure or COMM. Mental health screening should also be conducted as, again, untreated mental health disorders can lead to misuse. Continual monitoring is essential during therapy, especially observing for red flag behaviors, such as early refills, lost scripts, kill count discrepancies, impaired function, and sharing with friends and relatives. Keep in mind, some of these red flag behaviors may have a rational explanation. 
as increased use may be due to inadequately treated pain versus looking to get high from the medication. And Maria, what strategies can be used for pain treatment in patients on medications for opioid use disorder? I know that can sometimes be a tricky situation. Yes, very tricky situation. And I had spoken about multimodal therapy in general on pain management, and it's even more important in this patient population. So many times, especially if it's acute pain, I will use acetaminophen, non-steroidal agents around the clock, and try to reserve the opioids for additional pain control. Trying to maximize any coanalgesics that I would feel would be appropriate based on their disease state, especially like some of these comorbidities, many of these patients have anxiety. So can we use a, a SNRI or can we use a gabapentinoid that can work with that anxiety? And if a patient needs opioid therapy, our metastatic cancer patients, say for example, we can think about using our medications for opioid use disorder for both that cancer pain and their use disorder. Buprenorphine, methadone, they're medications for opioid use disorder that can provide analgesia for severe pain. You can check out methadone when we use methadone for pain and without a use disorder or buprenorphine for pain without a use disorder. We can use lower doses, but in this patient population, because they are tolerant because of their use disorder, we need to use appropriate doses and doses that are similar that are used in their opioid use disorder. So example, for buprenorphine, we may need to use 16 to 24 milligrams of buprenorphine versus a 20 microgram an hour patch of butrans formulation of buprenorphine, which is only 480 micrograms a day. So the buprenorphine oftentimes for use disorder is ordered once a day. Methadone for use disorder is once a day. One strategy is to take that dose and split it multiple times a day in order to provide analgesia and continue to minimize those cravings. Buprenorphine is also very interesting because it has a very high affinity to the opioid receptor. And oftentimes, some other opioid would not be able to knock the buprenorphine off the receptor or have a high enough affinity to that receptor to provide additional analgesia. So another strategy is you have to use additional opioids in these patients that also have a high affinity to the receptor, such as fentanyl, such as hydromorphone. Morphine will not be a great choice in these patients because it does not have a high enough affinity to the receptor to provide adequate analgesia. Another strategy that I've used is to add additional buprenorphine as needed for pain control. And I've had a patient where the opioids did not work and the additional buprenorphine did help. So there may be a ceiling effect with buprenorphine. We're finding that about 24 to 32 milligrams more than that of buprenorphine, you're not going to get any additional pain control. So we can try to get up to those doses by splitting them up. Methadone can be also divided up. Methadone is interesting. You can add a small amount of methadone to patients and use that for additional pain control on someone that's already on high doses of opioids. Try to see if you can minimize some of that hyperalgesia and development of tolerance and provide a little bit of an extra boost for them to get their pain under better control. And again, with methadone, you also should divide the doses up. If it's even a methadone maintenance dose, divide it up multiple times a day to provide a little bit better analgesia. And you have to be careful also with methadone compared to buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a bit safer of a drug. It may have a more of a ceiling, but much less drug interactions, much less interactions on the part with QTC prolongation. 
Okay, thank you, Maria. So last question for you, Norm. What can we do to ensure the safe use of opioids in the opioid use disorder population? Thank you, David. Monitoring is important in any patient on opioid therapy, but you may need to consider additional monitoring in patients with comorbid uh, OUD. Goals of therapy should be established and therapy decisions should be made through shared decision-making with the patient. Patients may need to be seen more often. Shorter durations of opioid prescriptions can be given. Assessment of non-medical use and cravings should be conducted every visit. Universal precautions for pain, such as pill counts, random urine drug screens, appropriate documentation of efficacy, toxicity, and abuse are recommended to be performed on everyone on opioid therapy in order to minimize bias. Naloxone should also be prescribed to patients on opioid therapy that are at a higher risk of overdose, such as those in high doses of opioids, those on concomitant benzodiazepine therapy, patients with current opioid use disorder, and patients with a history of overdose. All righty, definitely good note there, especially with the naloxone prescribing. So in closing, thanks both Maria and Norm for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org slash podcast and using the CE code 22062A. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Again, please use the CE code 22062A to redeem continuing education. Finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as resources centers, including those on ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit and Forums, such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. If you enjoyed today's episode, which I know you did, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.